Uh, you have an outline and uh, uh, I hope that will be helpful in the bulletin. Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this evening that we would know you present amongst us as your spirit teaches us uh, through your word. Help me to teach your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive this word as the word of the living God and to believe it and to change our thoughts and words and actions to conform to its truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if tonight two people dropped dead in church when their sin was exposed, you would, unsurprisingly, be shocked, unsettled and disturbed. In fact, even reading about those deaths is unsettling, isn't it? And it seems like an upsetting interruption in the otherwise positive story of Acts so far. The story of the preaching of the gospel in the power of the spirit and the expanding impact of that preaching, the growth in the number of believers in Jesus. In fact, the death of Ananias and Sapphira even seems out of character with the very attractive picture of the early church given in the verses immediately preceding, verses uh, 32 on, where the entire group of believers, we're told, were of one heart and mind. So it seems out of place, but the Ananias and Sapphira episode is actually an essential part of the story of the gospel. It's an essential part of the story of how the Lord Jesus, through his spirit, grows his church. Last week in Acts 4, you saw an external threat developing to the preaching of the gospel and the growth of the church, the opposition of the Jewish authorities. That threat will grow and intensify over the next few chapters, climaxing with the violence that erupts against the church with the stoning of Stephen. But in these chapters, you'll also see the Lord Jesus protecting his church and through this opposition, enabling them to be what he has called them to be, witnesses to his resurrection in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts is the story of the triumph of the gospel in and through deadly opposition. But the threat to the existence and growth of the church is not just external. It's internal as well. That internal threat, a threat to the existence and growth of the church that arises from within the community of believers, is seen for the first time in our passage and seen in its most serious form. But of course that internal threat will occur again in the quarrelling about support for the widows in chapter 6 in questions about the inclusion of the Gentiles in chapter 11 and then debate about the role of the law and salvation in chapter 15. You see, Acts is also the story of how the Lord Jesus, through his spirit, guides and protects his church and causes it to grow in the face of these internal threats. The Ananias and Sapphira episode is an essential part of that story. And the Ananias and Sapphira episode is also an essential part of the description of the church Jesus grows, establishing the kind of community Jesus' church we should be. And so God's dealings with Ananias and Sapphira are not out of place. 
they actually are an essential part of understanding two big themes, how Jesus is active to grow his church and the kind of church Jesus is growing. And what will become clear in our whole passage, 432 to 511, is that God expects his people to be characterised in all their dealings by love and truth, a love and truth sustained by a healthy fear of the living God amongst his people. And so the question tonight's passage will actually ask of you is whether you are serious about making sure all your dealings with Jesus' people, with God's church, are characterised by that love and truth God looks for from his people. Whether you yourself know that healthy fear of God in all your dealings with his people. Now the entire group of those who believe were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Now this is a very attractive picture, isn't it, of a unified and sharing community where there's no selfishness or possessiveness. It's a picture of commitment to each other and of great generosity, people who own lands and houses selling them and bringing the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed. It's a picture of generosity because this sale of property and the gifting of the proceeds to the community for distribution was voluntary. That's actually made very clear in Peter's response to Ananias in chapter 11. Wasn't it yours? Well, you possessed it after it was sold. Wasn't it at your disposal? People's private property was theirs to do with as they wished. There was no compulsion in this gifting. Surrender of property was not a requirement of membership of the church as it was at Comran and as it still is today in some sects. These sales and the gifting of the proceeds were freely made, freely made to relieve the needs of their brothers and sisters. It's an attractive picture. And this description of a community of one mind and spirit where all that was was held in common was actually also a picture that was attractive to the ancient world that resonated with the classical culture's ideal community, but with a significant difference. In the classical culture, this ideal was seen as an ideal of friendship amongst equals, social peers with a reciprocal sharing of benefits. I give to you my friend, you give to me your friend. But the picture we have here of the early church is radically different from that ancient ideal because here there's a community made up of people from all kinds of classes and backgrounds with greatly differing wealth and education and there is no mention of reciprocity. The wealthier Christians are giving without thought of return. Their gifts are gracious as well as generous. And so what we actually have here is more a picture of family than of friendship, of a commonwealth based on belonging to the one people of God, calling one God our Father. 
And this is a picture of a community getting on with the job as their prayers are answered. Remember in chapter 4, just in the passage immediately preceding, they had prayed to declare the world with boldness. Now we read that with great power the apostles give testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, this is a picture of a community built on the gospel, testified to by the continuing central role of the apostles, seen in people bringing their gifts and laying them at the apostles' feet. The apostles have been chosen to preach the gospel. It was their spirit-empowered testimony, as we've seen, that gathers the church. And it's their word that continues to govern their life together. Truth, gospel truth, and love, gospel love, characterise this very attractive picture of the Christian community. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not uh, a, a pattern, you know, selling what you have, having all in common, is actually not a pattern repeated in Acts or elsewhere in the New Testament churches that are established by the preaching of the gospel. And this is a pattern that's not directly commanded, is it, in Scripture? You see, Luke's snapshot of the early church is is not prescriptive. It's, it's not establishing an ascetic ideal, the idea that real Christians sell all that belongs to them, embrace poverty. In fact, while encouraging contentment, the New Testament elsewhere commands us to make our own living by work and not to be reliant on the gifts and the generosity of others. And in fact, rather than telling the rich to sell their property, the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, encourages the rich to generosity and doing good. And so what we see here is in Acts 4 is an ad hoc provision for need, the needs of the Jerusalem church, probably necessitated by some distinctive features of the Jerusalem community, distinctive features that made this an appropriate expression of love that Jesus commanded his followers. And so, for example, Jerusalem had a high proportion of dependents because many poor Jews, especially poor widows from around the Mediterranean, gathered at the temple. That's part of the background to chapter 6. Oh, and yes, Jerusalem, the apostles know, is a city under judgment. Now, we read about that in Matthew 24. So, in some sense, it makes sense to sell the property, to sustain these dependents. But this is not a model that's prescribed. There's no centralised system of income equalisation, no centralised control of property. So how is this picture, a picture of a pattern that's not repeated, how is this picture setting expectations for all Christian communities since that time, because it is setting expectations. Well, one of the things we'll see in Acts is that it can be difficult going from narrative to prescription, from story to command, from what was then to how we should live or what we should expect now. That can be difficult, especially in the details. But Luke actually is, with this picture, establishing an expectation, the expectation that the 
communal life of believers should express the reality that in being called to believe in Jesus by the gospel, we are called into one family and we have to care for each other as members of this family. In this case, that expectation is explicit in the rest of the New Testament. See, while the particular expression of love belongs to this particular community, there's a continuing obligation on all believers throughout the New Testament, and that's the continuing obligation to love each other. And it's an obligation to love each other practically, to value people over possessions, just as we see is true of these first believers in Jerusalem. 1 John, for example, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us and we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone sees the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech but in action and in truth as we see these first believers loving each other. Or again, in James, after just talking about the royal law, the law of love, he writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Love means those who have freely supplying the needs of those who do not have. Now, those needs may differ amongst us. Maybe it's a need for companionship in loneliness, or a need for work, or a need for a hand with maintenance where our brothers and sisters are frail. The form of meeting those needs may differ, but the expectation has been established by God at the beginning. He expects our love for one another to be real and to be seen in generous help. We need to hear this. You know, there may well come a time in Australia, as it is in other parts of the world, where believing in Jesus exposes some believers to loss of property or economic exclusion, the loss of education and career pathways. We should commit ourselves now to what God expects of his people, real love seen in generous help. And if in the coming years the Lord sustains our prosperity, then there are believers elsewhere in need. And the generosity of these first believers in the church in Jerusalem is actually matched later in the New Testament. It's actually matched by the generosity of the believers who gave to the collection Paul was taking up for believers in Jerusalem, believers whom the donors had never seen. There is a continuing expectation of real generous love. And we have opportunity to now to support poorer Christians around the world through the Barnabas Fund or through the missionaries we know amongst the Fulani or the Cameroon or, or the believers in Cameroon or amongst the Mien. Don't, don't just shrug off this picture as some early enthusiasm. Rather, it's actually asking you to ask, what does my use of property 
say of my consciousness that in believing in Jesus, he has brought me into his family and he expects me to love my brothers and sisters graciously, expecting nothing in return and to love them generously. So reading this story should actually make you ask, how am I using what God has entrusted to me in love? Luke goes on and gives us uh, an example, an encouraging example, of someone who was characterised by truth and love. Joseph, better known to us by, uh, better known by us as Barnabas. You see, Luke finishes the snapshot of the church with this example because he wants us to know that he hasn't been giving idealised generalities. He's been talking about the real actions of real believers and so he gives this concrete, particular example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth and one of the, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is actually a very well chosen example because as becomes apparent as Acts goes on, He's someone who will be known to some, perhaps many, of Luke's first readers because of his ongoing role in the spread of the gospel. Luke, in these words, is introducing a character who will feature in the story to come who is related to major figures and initiatives in what is to come in Acts, related to Paul, related to the work in Antioch, related to the first missionary journey to Asia Minor. This is a figure many would know. And Luke says, look at Barnabas. He was there. He gave. He participated wholeheartedly, straightforwardly, freely in this generosity. And you can see in him, he says, the effect of genuine generosity is an encouragement, a great encouragement to the apostles and to the church. Oh, and Luke also introduces Barnabas here because he serves as a counter-example to Ananias. Ananias, a man whose motivation in his giving was so different from Barnabas's, a man whose behaviour threatens to destroy the truth and love Barnabas models, a man whose exemplary judgement is for the protection of God's people. So let's think now about Ananias and Sapphira. What are we to make of these shocking deaths we have read of? To help us answer that question, we're going to look at three things. Firstly, we're going to consider the Old Testament precedents for these judgments. Secondly, we're going to clarify what the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is and why it's so serious. And thirdly, we're going to think about the outcome of these judgments. And as we do this, the expectation God has for the character of his people, his church, and his determination that his church should be characterised that way will again become clear. Firstly, there are similar exemplary judgments associated with the establishment of the old covenant community that inform our thinking about God's judgments on Ananias and Sapphira. 
By an exemplary judgment, I mean a judgment of God, one that's undoubtedly and unambiguously of God, that's given to teach or reinforce what God has already said and is not repeated in that form, even though the same offence or similar happens in later history. It's not repeated because it does not need to be because God has already made his point through that judgment. Now, the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are a judgment of God. <coughs> Peter does nothing other than, in Sapphira's case, anticipate the outcome of her sin. He utters no curse, pronounces no sentence. Their deaths are sudden, uncaused by any human agency, and their sin, as we'll see, is clearly seen to be against God, and fear of God is a result. And so their deaths are unambiguously the judgment of God. And for the reader of the Bible, their deaths recollect two earlier events, events that happened at the beginning of new phases in the life of God's people. The first was God's judgment of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, which you heard read, when God was establishing the priesthood and its role in the life of his people Israel. And the second was the judgment on a bloke called Achan at the beginning uh, of the conquest of the promised land in Joshua 7. Now you heard Leviticus 10 being read. It described the sudden destruction of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, just after the priesthood was inaugurated. There was no warning, no opportunity for them to repent. It was a deadly judgment, fully deserved, a deadly judgment to make a foundational a point, one essential for the existence of the people of Israel as God's people. This is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me and I will reveal my glory before all people. From the beginning of the priesthood, God was making it clear that God's priests could only come before him if they recognised his holiness by coming to God in the way he commanded. And that was important for the whole people. The whole people had to recognise the holiness of the God who was living amongst them. And for that to happen, the priests who drew near to God had to be first in recognising that holiness. <coughs> the destruction of Nadab and Habihu was making it very clear that the God who dwelt amongst Israel was the holy God and that he determined which people and how people could come into his presence. The behaviour that was consistent with living in his presence. And so although there were other bad priests in Israel's history, for example, Eli's sons, this specific judgment, this specific instant judgment is not repeated. Why? Because the point's been made. And there are also similarities with the sin of Achan and God's response to that sin described in Joshua 7. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, read Joshua 7 later. Here the similarities are in the sin and its unveiling, while the punishment is left to God's people. <coughs> Achan's sin was greed, coveting wealth, which led him to take for himself plunder from Jericho that was devoted to destruction. It was a sin which he tried to cover up, to keep secret. And it was a sin which affected the well-being of the whole people 
in fact threatened the destruction, the existence of the whole people of God. And it was a sin divinely revealed. Its judgment was death for him and all those who were his. Again, there's no record of the repetition of that judgment for the point had been made. Israel would only be successful in the conquest of the land on God's terms and they must bring nothing of what had been condemned to destruction amongst them. These were exemplary judgments, making it clear at the outset on what terms God would dwell amongst his people, on what terms they could continue as his people and enjoy his blessing. The judgment of, on Ananias and Sapphira is also an exemplary judgment, making clear at the beginning of the new covenant community what it means for God to dwell amongst his people by his spirit and making clear on what terms they could continue as his people and enjoy his blessing. Now, why do I say that? Well, what's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira and why is it viewed with such seriousness that it elicits this sudden and total judgment? There was a man named Ananias, and with his wife Sapphira, he sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it, and after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. Ananias' sin is deliberate lying. Deliberately, intentionally lying to enhance his own reputation. His lie? Well, he's presented part of the money he's received for his property, verse 3, as if it were all the money. And this is very deliberate, verse 2. He's reached an agreement with Sapphira, his wife, to practice this deception. And he didn't need to do this. There was no compulsion, either before or after the property was sold, to give all. And there was no shame in not giving all. So why has he done it? Well, we're told Ananias' actions are the work of Satan. Notice verse 3. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Behind the lies of Ananias was the work of the devil. Satan filling Ananias' heart is saying that Ananias has given himself in his heart the willing centre of his being to be directed by Satan's values to living Satan's way. And that is the way of lying. The devil, said our Lord in John 8, is a liar and a father of lies, one who has no truth in him and one who murders by lies. Ananias, you see, is trying to appear to be one kind of person while all the while being another. He wants to look like and be thought by others to be a generous Christian, giving all, yet in reality keeping some back just for himself. Ananias is lying because he wants the praise of men, not the praise of God. 
He fears people. He values their opinion. He doesn't fear God. And Peter says this is lying to the Spirit who is God. The God who searches men's hearts before whom all is laid bare, who is never deceived about our intentions or actions. Ananias has failed to recognise, has denied by his action the church's reality. And that is that God dwells amongst his people. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And it's you, plural, the community. God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him or her. The new covenant community is the community in which God is present by his spirit. Yet Ananias has treated the church as if it were just another human association to be used and exploited for his own purpose. And in so doing, he's tried to introduce hypocrisy into the life of God's people. Ananias' sin is deliberately lying, introducing hypocrisy into the church of God. What's the sin of Sapphira? Sapphira's offered, verse 8, an opportunity to repent. How much did you sell the land for? She's offered an opportunity to separate herself from her husband's lie. But she chooses to share in Ananias' lie. This story makes plain, doesn't it, that God clearly expects wives not to go along with their husband's sin. But notice verse 9. Peter calls their pact to deceive the church, agreeing to test the spirit of the Lord. Now that's what Israel did in the wilderness and it's what Satan tempted Jesus to do in the wilderness at the beginning of the gospel, at the beginning of his ministry. To test God is to reverse the order of who is in charge in the relationship. It's for the creature to claim to be able to dictate to God how things should happen. By their lying, Ananias and Sapphira are trying to dictate the terms of belonging to God's people. They're claiming that, in a sense, they can control the character of God's people, the kind of community God's people will be. Ananias and Sapphira are actually saying that they can belong, have a respected position amongst God's people by doing what seems right to them, what will serve their interests not doing what God says. And in their deaths, God makes it clear that people belong to his church on his terms and he has no place for lying. But why does God make this point by their death? What makes their sin so serious that at the beginning of the life of Jesus' church they must die for this deliberate lie? Well, think a little more about their sin. It's actually introducing Satan's way into Jesus' church, the place that actually comes into being by confessing Jesus as Lord, the place where his word is meant to rule. And so their deliberate lying is treason. It's actually seeking to establish Satan, the enemy, as the ruler in Jesus' church, as the one who dictates how people behave in Jesus' 
church, the church Jesus has bought with his blood. That's serious, isn't it? It's actually treason. And treason deserves death. And think a bit more about hypocrisy. How dangerous it is for the church of Jesus. Hypocrisy is the sin that Jesus persistently and forcefully denounces in the gospel. Above all, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrisy teaches that pleasing people is more important than pleasing God, that fearing people is more important than fearing God. Hypocrisy is breaking the first command, putting people in the place of God. When God has said, you'll have no other God besides me. <coughs> and here the Lord Jesus, through the Spirit, is making it clear he will not have hypocrisy in his church, that hypocrisy has no place in his church. Why? Well, such hypocrisy would have destroyed the early church and ended its mission. Destroyed the church we've just read about in verses 32 and 35 because hypocrisy is the enemy of love and truth, the things that should mark out Jesus' people. Hypocrisy is the enemy of truth because it's living a lie. We're practised consistently, actually, hypocrites sink so deep into their lie that they lose their truth. They can think, for example, that they are pleasing God by killing his son. Oh, and hypocrisy is the enemy of love, for it destroys trust by elevating self-interest as the guide to behaviour. And where self-interest rules and trust is destroyed, love cannot flourish. And being the enemy of truth and love, hypocrisy is the enemy of integrity. And so it destroys the credibility of the church, the credibility of those who are gospel messengers whom the world needs to believe to be saved. Ananias' sin goes to the heart of the church's mission and the church's character. God wants a people who can be believed. And God wants a people who will be like himself, the God of truth and love. He wants a people in whom others can see the goodness of his character, the goodness of following Jesus, because his people become like him. And of course Ananias and Sapphira's lie, their testing of the spirit, actually denies the reality that Jesus' church is the fellowship of the Spirit, the Spirit who searches our hearts. Hypocrisy distorts the character of the church and leads others to think of the church as just another human organisation, just another place where we can pursue our own goals and interests and enhance our wealth and status by playing the game. That is a denial of the church's very essence, the church of God which he bought with the blood of his own. Where hypocrisy takes root, the Lord Jesus is dispossessed of his church. It ceases to be his church and it is handed over to Satan. Now, not every hypocrite since that time has fallen down dead. This is an exemplary judgment, a lesson right at the beginning of the church that such deliberate lying, such hypocrisy has no place in the church of Jesus. The Lord Jesus is making very clear that he dictates the terms of belonging to his church 
and he expects his people to be like himself, marked out in their life together by truth and love, living to please God, not men, living by the fear of God, not the fear of man. And so you should be in no doubt that lying and hypocrisy has no place amongst us if we're followers of Jesus. And what was the outcome of these deaths? Well, it was actually the very opposite of what Satan was trying to achieve. Great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Great fear, awe of God, an awful awareness that the living and holy God is present amongst his people, those who trust in Jesus. An awful awareness that he sees and knows all we say and do, even in secret, and is active to protect and preserve the integrity of people, of his people. A determination to live to please him. Through these judgments, God actually establishes the very opposite of the mindset of Ananias. He makes it plain that at the heart of our obedience is this healthy fear of God, this healthy determination to live to please him because we know he is present among us and he sees and knows our hearts. And this fear is health-giving and it serves the gospel. Acts 9. The church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord. And encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As you hear these words, as you read this account, if you are a believer, if you read these words as true, the words of the living God, your response should be marked by fear too. The Lord Jesus is serious about the church being his, about having a people like himself because they trust and obey him. And he is present amongst his people by his spirit. We've seen Paul warn the Corinthians of that. If deliberate liars no longer die amongst us, it's because God is patient. And it's also because, as we see in 1 Corinthians, that the Lord has now entrusted to us, his people, the maintenance of the purity and the holiness of our life together. He expects us to deal with the sinning brother or sister, knowing God's standards for his church, he does expect us to rebuke and admonish one another and to hold each other to account to live lives of truth and love. And so we mustn't be complacent with hypocrisy in ourselves or hypocrisy amongst us. And we must see deliberate lying to look good to others for the wickedness it is, the work of Satan, not of Christ. So God has made plain from the outset what he expects to characterise his people and what he will not have amongst his people. Our Lord expects love, genuine love, expressed in how we use what God has entrusted to us for the well-being of his people. And he expects truth, truth in our inmost being, truth in our speech, the truthfulness that comes from living to please him who searches our hearts, 
not living to please ourselves or any others. Realise how much God's church and its integrity matters to God. So if you're a believer of Jesus, take to heart this exemplary judgment. And if you need to repent, repent. Because God's made his judgment clear. Repent of knowingly deceiving others. Repent of indifference towards Jesus' people or the nature of your... or or indifference in your involvement with them. Repent of knowing God's commands and then doing the opposite. Repent of living a Christian life that is shaped by wanting to look good in the sight of others, which in reality is just a vehicle for your self-advancement, whether it's to bolster your ego through the praise of others or whether it's to gain material advantage through gaining the trust of others or whether it's to enhance your reputation. If you are participating in the life of God's people so that you can look good, not because you live in fear of the living God, repent. Confess those things for the sin they are and find forgiveness. Make your model Barnabas. We'll hear more about him, but his was a life marked by truth and generous love. A life lived to please God through encouraging and supporting his people wherever he could. If you're a believer, take this to heart and turn away from all lies and hypocrisy. And if you're not yet a believer, well, maybe you've been put off by the hypocrisy of Christians. And, you know, this is kind of music to your ears. If you hate hypocrisy... If you've been put off by the hypocrisy of Christians, well, here, God hates hypocrisy. But as you hear that, also pause. Because if God, who is pure in his commitment to truth and love, so pure that he will act in judgment to remove it from his church, if God were to act to judge all sin immediately, where would you be? Where would your, say, lack of love, your living a life of self-interest, your failure of love, leave you in that judgment? Where would your lack of truth, the deceptions you nurse in your heart, the lies about yourself that you might live by, where would those things leave you in that judgment? You also need to repent, to turn back to the God of truth and love, by confessing he's raised Jesus from the dead and ask his forgiveness and to make you one of his people, the people whom he is determined will be like their Lord, a people whose life together he wants to be characterised by truth and love in all things as they live aware of the reality of God's presence amongst us. Let's turn away from hypocrisy and lies and embrace that truth and love in all our dealings with each other. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that we would heed this exemplary judgment, that we would know how much you hate lies and hypocrisy,
And we would see what a denial they are of your character and of Jesus' rule over his people. Turn us away from them. Give us that healthy fear of you that knows that you see and hear all things and you are an active judge. Give us that healthy fear of you that will commit us to a life of love and truth all our days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.